This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. I have an announcement to make. Next week, we will be hosting a Reddit AMA that stands for Ask Me Anything with our own Dr. Jonathan Cachet on R Kratom. That's reddit.com slash r slash kratom. In addition to the kratom stuff you hear on the Journal Club, Dr. Cachet is a neuroscientist who studied pretty much all DEA Schedule 1 to 4 drugs as part of his graduate work, and he knows a lot about cannabis indoor growing and helped found the Cannabis Museum in Ohio. Look for the announcement for the AMA that will be next week on reddit.com slash r slash kratom. The journal article is titled, Investigation of the Adrenergic and Opioid Binding Affinities, Metabolic stability, plasma protein binding properties, and functional effects of selected indole-based kratom alkaloids. And I think I pronounced everything right so far, but that's going to end pretty soon. (laughs) Um, And this was in Journal of Medicinal Chemistry. Uh, We have Dr. McCurdy again on this. Uh, A lot of people from College of Pharmacy, University of Florida... And they're basically studying how a lot of the alkaloids uh, bind to different opioid and adrenergic receptors. And um, so there's some of this study I understood, and then then there's like a middle part where I was like, okay, I'm just going to have to ask what the hell's going on here <laughs> but um it's, yeah it certainly is uh like an alphabet soup of receptors and then they get into like specific proteins or components of those proteins and the receptor molecules um so there's a, yeah some real detailed um you know, like analytical chemistry at a molecular level going on here um, yeah i think you summarized their goal pretty well and I was just going to um, go over again, just for the listeners now, um, opioid receptors, I think most people know basically what they are, um, and ad- adrenergic receptors. Now, would that be more, since a lot of these alkaloids bind to the adrenergic receptors, would that be more of maybe the stimulant properties of kratom and the opioid receptor binding would be in general the sedative uh properties of kratom and pain Um, relieving yeah so so more or less i mean there's lots of crosstalk between these two systems and overlap um because they can bind the same ligands. So like what we would typically think of as an opiate agonist can also bind in like alpha one or alpha two. Um, they, they affect the same downstream messenger systems. Um, there's actual instances too, where like, you know, the mu opiate receptor will form a dimer um, with one of the adrenergic receptors, say like alpha one. So the two different receptors of two different systems can come together and form what's a heterodimer um, and that changes how how the uh, information is is relayed down into the cell. Um, like you said, yeah, with the opiate system, there, there's three G coupled protein receptors. We've talked about them a lot: the mu, delta, and the kappa. 
Um, Mu is generally responsible for the therapeutic and like pain relieving effects and also the rewarding um, pleasurable effects that can then, you know, are currently theorized to be behind addiction. Um, when it comes to the adrenergic system, it's definitely a little more complicated. But what is typically uh, described or, or um, summarized conceptually is that the adrenergic system is what is behind your fight or flight response um, or your rest and digest response. And so uh, that's the, the back and forth between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, for our purposes in this study uh, that we're looking at now, um, it's the sympathetic nervous system uh, or that fight or flight mode that the four adrenergic receptors, alpha one, alpha two, beta one, and beta two um, are focused in, in this paper. Um, so what I think the major takeaway home is, uh, is just that when alpha one receptors are activated by the sympathetic nervous system, your pulse goes up your blood pressure goes up, your pupils dilate, you sort of spend less time on metabolizing food within your digestive system. Um, so that's sort of like getting, re getting you ready to, to fight or run. And it, the opposite is true with alpha-2. The alpha-2 receptor, when that gets activated, uh, it reduces your uh, heart rate, it reduces respiration, it reduces your blood pressure, um, it then reduces like inhibitions on your GI tract. So you're sort of, you know, coming down from this state of wild anxiety. Yeah. And now we're talking about how different kratom alkaloids bind to these receptors. Uh, we talk about the ones that are the two most famous ones, the Mick Jagger and Keith Richards of Kratom Alkaloids, uh, exactly, Mitragenine yeah. and 7 hydroxymitragenine and we can call them MG and 7O. And since 7O, they say it has the more opioid-like effects, so that would be the Keith Richards. Uh, <laughs> okay. But the other ones... <laughs> I don't know. That's stupid. Whatever. Um, but the other... <laughs> so, so the MG and 7O, those are the two main ones. The other ones they're looking at here are Corynanthidine, uh, and we can call him Cory. Cory. Like that. <laughs> okay. 9-hydroxycorynanthidine, and we call that 9-Cory. Spectrum. Uh, Speciosiliatine, which isn't, we did one on speciophiline, which I decided it was pronounced like that, um, uh -huh. and we call that speech. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another thing that they talk about, which I don't know exactly what it is. It's yohimbine, or yohimbine. Oh, yeah. yeah. What yeah, is that? Is that an alkaloid? It's an alkaloid, a well-characterized alkaloid that um, has been in, in pharm psychopharmacology for a while now. It's, it's a sort of a standard opiate receptor um, binding ligand. Um, can I say a little bit on Corey? Yeah. So, you know, the way that these authors set this paper up, they're essentially saying, you know, the classic, well, there's not, there's a lack of scientific information. People could be getting hurt or people are getting hurt. We need more information. 
Um, the part that bothers me is like, there's a lack of scientific information to provide guidance on this. So let's just ban it. You know, they don't, they, yeah. they, they admit to it. That, so they go to ban and that, you know, that's the, the default um, and, and where the politicians and the regulations come. But where they're getting at is we do need to understand information. And especially when it comes to good manufacturing practices, you know, GMPs that the AKA is, is reporting. The purpose of the study, though, um, was to follow up on a finding, and I'll just read the quote here. Um, Interestingly, it has been shown that Cori, a minor kratom alkaloid, acts as a functional antagonist at the mu opiate receptor and can reverse morphine-induced inhibition of twitch contraction from the uh, guinea pig ileum. Uh, Basically, what, what they're saying here is that it can replace morphine that's inhibiting these smooth muscles, which is what causes constipation. Um, but it doesn't seem to result in, in a reduction of the analgesic effects as much. So they're saying like Corey in particular seems to be um, reducing the amount of contractions, maybe reducing the amount of pain effects uh, felt, but it, it's more active or act. It seems to be that it's active at another receptor type different from the mu opiate receptor. I I think that's sort of the insight they keyed in on. Um, And I guess another way to consider it is, well, if you can make uh, a prescription drug that gives patients pain relief, but does not give them constipation, maybe there's some targets there, maybe with Corey, maybe if we learn more about Corey, we can figure out what, makes it unique enough to to get to that um, prescription that type of prescription does that make any sense yeah yeah and i even pulled that quote and i was going to ask you about it too and another thing is what we were talking about uh we talked about it i think last time and a few times before was this entourage effect of alkaloids um and just another quote from the article i pulled um Whereas, you know, I, we were talking about how if you isolated my tragenine and, and took that, it wouldn't have the same effect as Kratom because there's a lot mm-hmm. of different alkaloids acting. And that's basically what this whole paper is looking at, um, how how the entourage effect of Kratom works. Um, and what they say here, it's important to realize that these alkaloids have been and are being investigated as purified individual entities. As such, the resultant data are not directly correlative to the complex plant mixture where they occur in varying concentrations and ratios that could impact each individual, each individual alkaloids, pharmac pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics very nice yes <laughs> i have that highlighted as well and that is very yeah. i'm glad i'm glad that you that you focused on that because i think it was just the last journal club um uh episode that we put out where we were talking about this potential entourage effect of the alkaloids uh in kratom and so yeah it's uh it's important to know that um, particularly when you're trying to embark on these types of studies go through like what they actually did in this study um I'm under the results and discussion section. It says alkaloids were screened for their ability to displace bound radio ligands at Delta Kappa Mu mu and nociception opioid receptors, which they called DOP, COP, MOP, and NOP. (laughs) (laughs) They sound like uh, the seven dwarves or something. And at the adrenergic receptors. Um, 
first of all, what's a radio radio ligand? Um, so the analogy of a lock and a key is best uh, used to, when we're talking about the um, receptor binding. The key, in this case, is the ligand. It's the part that binds to or goes into the lock. And so basically what they're doing in these studies is you have your lock, the mu-opiate receptor, and you have your key, the ligand that we want to bind to this receptor. The radio tag, you can think about it like putting a little tag on this key that glows. And it glows in very specific things. Like maybe it only glows when it's binded. Maybe uh, it, it only glows after if, it, if it's not bound. But the radio tag is like, um, like a, using uh, radiography or x-ray type stuff. It's a way to move and visualize and count the amount of keys that are in the lock or not in the lock at any given time. Okay, that makes sense. Now, screen for their ability to displace bound radio ligands. What does that mean to displace them? Would that just mean yeah. uh, putting the key into different locks? or? Well, so I think the best way to think about it is uh, naloxone. Um, so if you're in the middle of a heroin overdose, the molecule, which would be the key, is stuck in the lock, and you, know, you could potentially uh, die from that. When you give them that Narcan or that naloxone shot, the, it, the Narcan goes in there and rips the, the opiate molecule out of the lock. It displaces it from the lock. Um, so that, you know, that's ligand displacement. Why they're doing it in this study is more related to how are they determining what binding affinities are. And so there's, um, it can, you know, I don't know how many uh, sort of, um, physical or chemical psychologists or neuroscience we have on, on, uh, as listeners. So I'm going to just try to like, I'm going to stay sort of very high level. Um, you have to know that a binding affinity, which is either marked as KI or KD, the stronger there is binding on the receptor, the lower the KI or KD is. So a low number of affinity is stronger binding at the receptor. The way that you actually get the K number, uh, the affinity uh, number, is by looking over time, how long does it take your target molecule to displace 50% of the receptor binding uh, in the experiment? Um, so, you know, people talk about LD50 or mm -hmm. uh, therapeutic dose 50. This is sort of the same thing. You're calculating the affinity based on timing how long it takes for 50% of the, the tagged compound to throw them off of the receptor. Does that make sense? Is that where your question was? Yeah, yeah. I was just trying to get a general idea. And what did they actually do? I mean, there were rat tests and stuff, I think, in this study. But what are they actually doing for, to look at the... Are they just looking at the effect on uh, mice or rats in here or... Or are they looking at everything under a microscope or uh, maybe like, uh, you know, liver specimens or something like that? There's a, a few different ways. And you're right. The study did have behavioral um, uh, endpoints at the end. For the yeah. people that are doing these radio ligand binding studies, which I, I think we might have, have gone over a little bit in, in a previous episode. But what they're actually doing is they're getting a piece of, you know, like a skin membrane, um, or it could be just a single cell, a single neuron, 
they're making it, uh, they're putting in, in, injecting vectors that will increase the number of, say, mu opiate receptors on that cell's surface. Um, and then they can use electrical diodes to see when they get active, if, a, if uh, the electrical signal goes up or down, um, just to make sure that it's efficient. And so they can both use cell physiology to look at the amount of flow coming in and out of these receptors, as well as the radio ligands to visually to count to see at what point 50% is reached. Is, is, that, is that clearer? There, it's not a live animal. It's a cell tissue culture um, mm -hmm. that they're hooking electrodes up to and then taking pictures of. I'll just read something I pulled out and then it and then it's kind of an introduction for a question I have, but the affinity of mitragenine was determined at the, all the receptors as a reference to compare the other creative alkaloids, except at DOP and NOP, uh, delta and nociceptive opioid receptors, where it had poor binding at 10,000 nm. So I'm kind of just looking at these tables, table one, table two, table three, and it shows... Uh, a list of the receptors and this is an open access article so anybody could look at it and I'll have a link to it in the description and then it has all list of all the alkaloids and it has NM um, what is NM as a measure of... it's nanomolar so it's okay. a measure of concentration okay and so what what do you th I mean this table shows that there's different rates of concentration at different receptors um so you just have so, any comment on the table or what that yeah shows so us? looking at table one um let's look at um like the op mu opiate receptor so the binding site is mu opiate it's the second one up from the bottom before they added the seven hydroxy or the metragenine before they added the alkaloids to the cell tissue culture. The cell tissue was already exposed to uh, an opiate uh, ligand. So one that would bind to those uh, receptors that was tagged with the, you know, the fluorescent tag. Because this is in percentage, 7-hydroxymetragenine had almost 100.7% and 81.8% had the displaced the radio ligand the most, meaning that 7-hydroxy had a stronger binding affinity for the mu opiate receptor, or stronger at least, than the bound radio ligand. Um, all of the results in table one were just to essentially screen the alkaloids that they were looking at. So one, two, three, four, five. They screened them to then say, um, which one should we proceed with? You know, and what studies do we need to go from there? So the strongest opioids are the strongest, um, the ones that displace the radio ligands the most then went over uh, into table two. And so in table two, we're looking at the kratom alkaloids specifically binding to the opiate receptors. And so you can see um, that for the mu opiate receptor, uh, this is the third column, MOP, uh, the, the strongest was zero or the seven hydroxymetragenine. Number two was this, the specio one. Number three, the 9-hydroxychlorethylinidine. Number four was the chlorethylinidine. And then number five is the metragenine. 
And, that, and that's just looking at lowest to biggest in terms of the strongest binding affinity. So that's the order okay. at that receptor that, uh, that they fit. 7-hydroxymetragenine was the strongest, uh, had the strongest affinity for the mu, uh, kappa, and delta across the board. Um, but that's not really the case for the other, uh, the other kratom alkaloids that we're looking at. Yeah. Um, and so table two is how, what are the binding affinities for opioid receptors? And then table three, what are the binding receptors specifically for the adrenergic subtypes? Corinanthidine. Um, with the 41.7 is the strongest of the kratom alkaloids. It binds the strongest to this alpha one D subtype receptor. Uh, I mean, did they do anything to manipulate the particular alkaloids? Cause there's, um, I'll just read this quote. I pulled out the binding data obtained at the opioid adrenergic receptors show that the removal of indolmexothemoidy methoxymoiety on MG does not influence the binding affinity to the MOP, mu opioid receptor. However, removal of the mexothy group, <laughs> methoxy yeah. group, results in significant reduction in binding to the kappa opioid receptor. And is are they, like, manipulating? I don't, I don't even know what methoxy is. And yeah. are they the ones that are removing it or is it, or is it just something that happens in binding? Well, so you see figures like two and three have these 3d color chemical structures. Yeah. So what they're trying to do is, this is essentially would say, if you have the key analogy, now we're talking about the bumps on the keys and they're, they're in the computer. They're changing the bumps on the keys to see what bump is most important in order to make the lock open and turn. So they're not yeah. actually modifying the entire molecule. They're like adding a hydroxy group would be to pop off a hydrogen and then add an oxygen and a hydrogen together. So they're modifying very particular attachment groups at a very particular spot on the ligand or the key. And they're seeing if, if that changes the way the confirmation of the binding to the receptor um does that clear it up a little bit yeah yeah definitely and um they even said and you said like the, with the oxygen they even said uh introduction of a hydroxy group at position seven and seven hydroxy tragedy significantly increased binding to the mu opioid receptor uh compared to the kappa um so i guess they're adding and taking away the hydroxy group which, yeah the, so that the chemical isn't the the chemical isn't changing let's just use metragenine because it's, it's easier for us to say yeah they're not changing the the chemical away from metragenine they're just changing like these uh secondary groups around the the, the structure the confirmation structure okay um i mean another way to think of it too is um fentanyl is so potent because it has like one or two OH groups in a different spot than hydrocodone or oxycodone. And that change to the bumps on the key makes it so much, you know, the fit so much better in the lock that it makes it very deadly. Um, yeah. So these small changes, like it's called understanding receptor dynamics. So the, the ligand or the molecule that's coming into the receptor the four points that it binds to the like cup on the receptor 
lead to changes and then the receptor starts to twist. Well, you can remove, you know, one, one or two of those groups from the, the signaling molecule and it will still bind to the receptor, but it won't bind as strong and it won't cause the turn. So they're like specifically going through one by one to say, okay, we know this part causes the turn. We know this part causes it to open up the channel a little bit more. What if we were able to change two or three parts of those? How would it affect what happens in the receptor? So it's very deep into the relationship between the, the ligand or the key and the lock and to the point where you're looking at the bumps on the key and you're looking inside the lock to see how, to see how the binding actually occurs and how strongly it occurs. Or, and incidentally, I think that's kind of how synthetic drugs work, uh, because I know my brother's a bodybuilder, and he was, a few years ago, he was taking this stuff that he said it was like a molecule away from methamphetamine, but it was technically legal because it wasn't methamphetamine. It's how people get ideas for research chemicals or other synthetic drugs. Yeah. I can modify certain aspects of the drug, and it will still bind to that same receptor that the drug of, of desire does but the molecules change enough that it's not technically the same yes it's where you would get like it's where you would get the the prospect list like well if this if, if compound a is illegal we can make b3 you know b through z slightly different enough and then figure out which one binds to the to the receptor to get the effect we're looking for are there a lot of studies like this with the kratom alkaloids because they're they're looking at them so closely that pretty soon you know the scientists can be able to say this is what this one does this is how this interacts with the other one i don't know how much of that's out there yes yes you're right in that not a lot of studies like this are being done and so a lot of the studies that we have spoken about in the past are behavioral studies and then they'll use uh a note like they'll they'll either pull away the mu opiate receptor altogether or they'll see if it can be stronger than naloxone. But they're really just changing the drugs they're giving the mice and whether or not the receptors they're interested in are there or not. In this study, they're, getting, they're zooming in much closer and looking at, like I said, the bumps on the key and the bumps inside the lock um, in those 3D chemical representations to figure out specifically what parts of these molecules lead to the differences in the binding receptors not uh not a, a broadly like macro picture of is this receptor needed for this ligand um or is this you know and how powerful is this ligand no there have not been very much that zoom into that level of analysis of like um the physical dynamics between this the receptor and the ligand and under functional functional effects i pulled a couple things that were pretty cool i thought it says uh interestingly a1 adrenergic antagonists have been shown to be effective in reversing the rigidity of the diaphragm, chest wall, and upper airway wooden chest syndrome produced by fentanyl, which suggests that mitragyny may be useful in curbing, curbing fentanyl-related overdoses. Would this be anything like how naloxone works? It, I, I would say, broadly speaking, yes, because it's discussing how uh, the interaction of two compounds or uh, a slightly different compound with the same targets lead to different physiological results. Um, but I don't know exactly. I, I don't think that they were suggesting that, like, if someone's taken fentanyl, we could use metragenine um, to counteract the effects of the, 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 um, the fentanyl. Okay. 
And another one I was looking at uh, under functional effects is uh, speciosiliatine had anti-nociceptive effects at 10 milligrams per kilogram, um, which is pain blocking. However, this dose produced lethality in 5 out of 21 rats tested indicating a narrow therapeutic window so they Very found the, they found the LD uh 25 i guess of uh speece um so that's kind of another example why kratom works better in uh the entourage effect instead of you wouldn't want to extract that alkaloid and take very much of it right yeah it's because it's found in low levels in the naturally occurring leaf mm-hmm. yeah it's you're not at risk for running into those to those issues wow yeah um you know and i think the other point too worth mentioning here and so they did the behavioral studies and like the tail flick tests but they also were looking at how quickly the different alkaloids are metabolized in liver enzymes um and so they they cori for example is half of it is metabolized by your liver enzymes within six minutes. And so it's completely metabolized in 12 minutes. Um, at least in, in these studies that are like, you know, they take liver enzymes, they put them in the test tube, then they inject the, the compound of interest. Um, but untangling this a little bit more, you know, if we were to like whiteboard this out and add all of the alkaloids, we could then say, we're trying to figure out the entourage effect. Well, this one binds strongly to the mu opioid receptor, but it's metabolized in the liver within 12 minutes. So the effects that we're seeing probably aren't related to this alkaloid. Um, that's some of the stuff that this paper, the data that this paper is providing mm-hmm. that ends up being useful. Part of the title is uh, like metabolism. Uh, the plasma and mic- microsomal protein binding corrected hepatic ratio <laughs> suggests that the alkaloids have low hepatic extraction ratio so what what does that suggest cori was found to be unstable in human liver microsomes so those are just enzymes in the human uh in the human liver unstable meaning that cori doesn't stick a lo- stick around for very long it just says in general the alkaloids have low hepatic extraction ratios does that mean they take a while to get out of the liver I mean, that could be why they work. <laughs> so I read that sentence to say that they are not degraded very quickly in the enzymes. Okay. Um, in general, the binding correction and clearance prediction resulted in under prediction of clearance. It's important to perform in vivo in animal models to establish a correlation to better predict the haptic clearance of these alkaloids. Yeah. Yeah, and and then frankly, I haven't, I don't, I haven't come across any studies that are looking at the, those pharmacokinetic patterns, like how fast are these uh, compounds or the alkaloids metabolized and then excreted. Um, this is one of the first uh, that gets into that level of detail. And you know, I gotta say, um, I think I'm with you on this one, and that uh, the amount of detail and nuance, that how deep this paper goes, you know, I feel a little bit like a fish out of water to a certain extent. Hey, you and me both. <laughs> Welcome to land. <laughs> For sure. This uh, this paper, and one of the reasons why we picked it is because we get a lot of questions about how the different kratom alkaloids affect um, the effects that you that you feel, and we always talk about the opiate um, the signaling system 
um, and the adrenergic uh, system comes into play sometimes. I think this is the first paper that clearly demonstrates that some of the alkaloids like metragenine and 7-hydroxybutragenine bind and bind strongly to opiate receptors. Um, and some of the alkaloids in Kratom do not. This paper then says, but, but the alkaloids that aren't binding to the opiate receptors are binding to the noradrenergic system and the noradrenergic um, uh, receptors. And, and what this can sort of mean, and in the detail they're going in, like it could lead to better treatments um, or it can lead to better pain medication that doesn't have the negative side effects, but it also can lead to better treatments of people trying to kick opiate use disorder. So like if you were to take Corey, uh, it doesn't bind strongly to the opiates, but it does bind strongly in the neurogenergic system. Um, and in particular can lead to the one where you're decreasing your heart rate, you're decreasing your blood pressure. So you're basically like pushing the body into the rest and digest mode. So if you could make a new opiate use agonist at this alpha re uh, receptor two in the adrenergic system, you're essentially reducing the anxiety or that you know uh, anxious energy that you get in the middle of a withdrawal uh, uh, phase. And so I think that's that's the cool contribution that this this paper makes. Um, and then more broadly speaking, you know, you and me are sort of discussing and navigating uh, this science as it comes out in real time. So it's cool mm -hmm. that we're getting. You know, we're getting to the depths of levels where uh, I'm starting to feel lost, um, but we're getting to the depths of levels where the people that are doing these type of drug discovery and, and drug development research are now getting data points, particularly the ones when you're looking at that 3D representation of the, uh, of the, of the alkaloids, 3D chemical representation of the opiate alkaloids, understanding what makes the kratom, the aspects of the kratom molecules bind to opiate receptors in a particular way. Um, is important uh, not only to determine safety, but it's also important to to prove that maybe the dangers aren't there, and that and maybe it's you can learn from this and then change uh, current med opiate medications to make better ones. And it also kind of confirms um, the final sentence of the conclusion says uh, the polypharmacology exhibited by the kratom alkaloids may support the claims made by patients taking kratom for the self-management of numerous diseases such as pain opioid use disorder and opioid withdrawal so it's it's kind of it's kind of even they even with all this complicated chemistry they're doing they even say well basically what people have been saying is right. So, so yeah, it kind of well, backs I, up the social science of it. And it would suggest that just taking metragenine alone for opiate, for opiate withdrawal or opiate use disorder wouldn't be enough. Corey mm -hmm. adds another piece to this puzzle to say it's, it's slowing down your fight or flight response and turning up your rest and digest response, which is really what people need when they're, you know, trying to transition off of opiates and get rid of that, like, you know, I've heard people report it as like, I always feel like I'm like anxious, like the right before they're about to take off from the starting block of a race, that sort of, you know, shaky energy that you have is your, uh, your, your sympathetic nervous system activating. If you could reduce the amount of activation, um, or as it seems Corey does, then it, it, there's an additional support for the first use in opiate use disorder. So not just as uh, a, a not as potent, not as strong opiate, but also as uh, the adrenergics, modulating the adrenergic system to reduce these effects. 
There was a comment on YouTube on the last episode. Um, so this guy, JM, commented on YouTube about the Kratom Cultivation Study, the Greenhouse Study. He said, I think this study is rather short-sighted. Valuable, yes, but in terms of studying the chemotypic profile, looking at alkaloids only is likely missing the full picture. I personally believe the alkaloids are only partly responsible for the bioactivity this plant provides. Focusing on alkaloids as a major component of bioactivity is an old approach and has allowed active components like salvinorin to be missed for years by Hoffman, who was convinced it had to be an alkaloid. Uh, my tragedy is bioactive, no doubt, but there's more to this than just the alkaloids. Yeah, so salvinorin is a terpenoid, and uh, metragenine is an alkaloid. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I got to – thanks for the comment, JM. And I got to say, um, you know, good job on, on noting the difference between alkaloid and the terpenoids with, with salvinorin. Um, so I would say he's right in that if you're just looking for nitrogen-based alkaloids in a plant to understand what its effects are, and you're not also looking at the terpenoids, um, you would miss something like salvinorin. But I would also just say, you know, caution that um, metragenine and 7-hydroxymetragenine are like really the only things we know about. Um, I don't know what terpenoids may be in Kratom that we would want to look at. Um, and you got to start somewhere really. So like the, the study can't be short sighted because it's the first one you, you got to start somewhere. Um, but he's certainly correct in to say the chemotypic profile and the biosynthesis of terpenoids and the alkaloids is important, uh, and responsible for the bioactivity that the, the plant provides. Um, maybe he knows of some, uh, like, you know, sequester, uh, you know, terpenoids like Silverin that are in Kratom. Um, I don't know if we're aware of any uh, terpenoids or diterpenoids um, that are in Kratom that have binding activity at this point. Um, but it, it's certainly, com comment well taken. I mean, yeah, we should look at the terpenoids and the alkaloids, but I'll say you got to start somewhere. Thank you, Dr. Jonathan Cachet. Don't forget, next week we will be hosting a Reddit AMA with Dr. Cachet at reddit.com slash r slash kratom. Go there now. Maybe the announcement's already up. Maybe it's not. But it'll be next week. The music is Moonrunner by Captain Bigwheel. The Kratom Science Podcast is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.